Elliot and Sasha would come to the office at the end of the day where they, they worked at Vibe and the Source, respectively. And, right. you know, I would get to sit and watch these five guys sit around one computer with Chairman Mao as the hands behind the, the keyboard. And they would come up with these charts or write Ted Bono's editorial, the Ted editorial, um, or Galen Bono's column, um, or the Ego Trip Fiction. Um, and it, I, I imagine it is probably what like being in the SNL writers room in 1977 was like. And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly fidelity. Fly fidelity. Fly fidelity. Fly fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly fidelity. Fidelity. Fly fidelity podcast. Fly fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> Welcome to the program. On this season premiere, we're featuring part one of a two-part conversation with founder and host of Idea Generation, Noah Callahan Bevel, journalist, writer, editor, A&R, music executive, elite content creator. We discuss and dissect his extraordinary journey so far, from his humble beginnings working in print media to defining complex, to becoming head executive of Def Jam, his latest and greatest project yet, Idea Generation. As a young music journalist, my goal was to understand how musicians made their creative decisions. But as I moved up the masthead, from reviews to cover stories, from editing sections to editing a portfolio of properties, my interest evolved. Now I wanted to know how the creators I covered thought about things like innovation, strategy, and management. And the more that I pulled at these threads, the more that the audience responded. So I partnered with Trisha Clark Stone and Helena Ox, and together the three of us created Idea Generation. A 360 media platform, Idea Generation exists to educate and inspire the creative entrepreneurs of tomorrow. And in no coincidence, the brand about creative entrepreneurship is itself an exercise in creative entrepreneurship. So here we are launching our first of many products, an interview show exploring the intersection of art and commerce. If you've ever had a big idea or dreamed of building a business on the back of your creativity, please tune in and join us on this ride. Welcome to Idea Generation. What was it, who was it, that drew you into hip-hop, and how did those formative years of being a fan in the beginning amplify your identity? Well, you know, I, I was born in 1979, um, which is, you know, to, to some people, the year that the first hip-hop record came out, um, you know, if you're, if you're counting um, Rapper's Delight. Um, but... So, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, uh, timing had a lot to do with it. Um, and then I think also sort of like geolocation was a huge part of it. You know, I grew up in New York City in the early 80s. And I think the combination of just sort of like coming into my own consciousness at the same time that hip hop is exploding, it sort of was just this ubiquitous sound that I really associated with you know, the place that I was living in, you know, I, I moved to the city when I was five years old or yeah, five years old. So it was um, kind of like a new and fresh 
thing that I was being exposed to right at the moment that hip hop was really making huge strides towards, you know, crossing over into sort of mainstream consciousness. Um, and so, I, you know, it's hard for me to put a finger on a, an exact moment that I became aware of hip hop, but I would say the first, I, I can specifically remember getting ready for school. My mom used to listen to pop radio, uh, WPLJ, and um, we were like in the bathroom and she's getting ready for work and I'm like, you know, brushing my hair and stuff. And uh, Fight for Your Right to Party came on the morning, you know, uh, countdown or whatever it was on WPLJ. This is in like 1986. Um, and being really drawn to the energy of it. And then shortly thereafter, um, a very close friend of mine, his older sister, Alicia, um, was, you know, probably like 14 or 15 and going out to clubs like Limelight and Palladium and stuff like that, even as a very young kid in New York. And uh, she gave us, uh, I think it was like a 120 minute uh, cassette, which had on one side, License to Ill, and on another side, um, criminal minded and Kenny Birch and I would just like listen to these endlessly and memorize the words. And his family had like a VHS uh, recorder. And so she would, uh, we would get Alicia to shoot sort of music videos of us, you know, lip syncing to like criminal minded or no sleep till Brooklyn. Um, and uh, yeah, the funny thing was that we had no idea that these were like two separate groups or that, there was any different that that one had one MC versus the other having three MCs it, to us. It was just like, this is the most exciting thing in the world. I don't, you know, and it's, it's really just about being drawn to an energy. Criminal minded. You've been blinded looking for a style like mine. You can't find it. They are the audience. I am the lyricist. Sometimes the suckers on the side. Gotta hear this page a rage and I'm not in a cage. Free as a bird to fly about on stage. Ain't here for no fronting, just to say a little something. Your suckers don't like me because you're all about nothing. However, I'm really fascinating to the letter. My all around performance gets better and better. My English grammar comes down like a hammer. You need to style, I need to pull your bottle. Bang favors, you kissing other people's. I write and produce myself just as fast. Keep my hair like this. Got no time for cherry curls. Attracting only women. Got no time for little girls. Cause girls look so good, but their brain is not ready. I don't know. I'd rather talk to a woman cause I'm on it so steady. So here we go. Coming to New York, you know, I, I had grown up, my, my parents met and, uh, you know, sort of my formative years took place at in Princeton, New Jersey, which is, you know, small suburban town in South Jersey. And uh, after my, my parents split, um, my mom moved to the city and I, I moved with her and we lived in lower Manhattan. Um, and, you know, the, the sounds and the sights of hip hop were really just sort of omnipresent. Um, you know, it was the music that you heard coming out of every car. Um, you know, back in those days, you could even see people like break dancing on cardboard boxes on the street like i know it sounds like something out of like beat street or something but that actually was something that would happen uh in tribeca or soho um you know obviously as uh something of a novelty at that point you know you would see you know obviously whole car beautiful whole cars were you know not uh, a dime a dozen but you saw an epic amount of tags and throw-ups and all kinds of graffiti everywhere um 
And, you know, it, it just became sort of like the aesthetic language of the city in my mind. And so, you know, once I started to sort of become more and more interested in music, uh, you know, this became sort of like the de facto, you know, uh, most interesting thing going on, really. Coming from an era where some of your earliest dedication about rap music was being shaped by way of tape trading, what would have been some of the earliest albums to define your taste as a fan during that period? I mean, okay, so definitely Mama Said Knock You Out and Nation of Millions and Fear of a Black Planet were extremely consequential to me um, in that 89... Um, 90 period, which is really when I started like, you know, before that, we we had this Beasties um, Boogie Down production tape. And then after that, uh, you know, I was sort of aware of the kind of pop stuff, Tone Loke, um, Rob Bass, obviously. And then, you know, really some like hair metal that was on the the radio and or on MTV at the time, you know, Guns N' Roses uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, and in that sort of, you know, elementary school period, I don't think I really had much understanding of of what was going on. And then around fourth, fifth grade, um, like I said, like 89, 90 um, was when I started really to like a, acquire music on my own and of my own volition. And, you know, those those three records were really big for me. There was something about Public Enemy that I just found so urgent and um just so compelling um chuck's voice was unbelievable um and the things that he was saying you know i didn't fully understand them but i could tell that they were important um and i was just drawn into them um and then from there you know me and my friends as we sort of started to uh you know decode um the, the contextual scene of hip hop and like what was going on and what was important. Cause you know, we're little kids and there's not much in terms of media, um, you know, around hip hop in general, um, right. and particularly not for, for, you know, like, uh, elementary school kids. Um, then we went into the native tongues and, and that was where I really sort of, you know, um, fell down the rabbit hole. So much of that era really depended on you buying a record by way of what that record looked like visually. And I was curious as to, as a illustrator back then, as a graffiti writer back then, what was the moment that you realized that the cover app was, and, and still is, in some cases, more important than the album was itself? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as calling myself a graffiti writer. I was a a a toy a uh, terrible graffiti writer, but I had grown up obsessed with comic books. And for really that, you know, that period of uh, kindergarten through say like fifth grade, you know, I was the kid that just went to the comic shop every single day after school and just hung out and read issues that, you know, I could never buy um, and just sort of got obsessed with the details of this, you know, these sort of shared universes in Marvel and DC. And, you know, I was the kid that would read the who's who and the Marvel universe index and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and really try to put together this sort of tapestry of characters and understand how they all fit together. Um, and I think that was a lot of what appealed to me about hip hop as well, was that 
as soon as I started to sort of learn about it, I started to realize that there was this larger shared universe and that, you know, the artists would thank each other and they had these relationships where certain people would do, you know, would work, make beats for each other. And all of these things were like, it was like, again, decoding these, this sort of levels of connection that were not abundantly obvious um, and sort of putting together this universe in my own head. But to answer your question about the, the, the covers, you know, I, of course, I, as a comic enthusiast, you know, you pick up a comic because you see the cover and then you flip through it. And one of the uh, slights of hand that the comic companies, of course, do is, is getting a different artist to do the cover than the inside. But, um, you know, I wasn't really savvy to that at 11 years old. But um, as I started to get, you know, a few rap albums and, you know, at this point, things that myself and my friends were were into, it was really like a you know, a cousin cosigns it or someone's older sibling cosigns it. And then you, you, you sort of have this, you know, um, cornerstone that you're building from. And then we would just go into Sam Goody and yeah, just look at the racks and, you know, flip through the cassettes and you would see, you know, something like the 30 PMD album, which, you know, as a comic book fan, instantly I connected with, you know, Daredevil, Frank Miller, and, you know, obviously Bill Sienkiewicz was uh, one of the most consequential uh, late 80s uh, Marvel artists, you know, um, of all time. Anyway, um, and yeah, so, you know, we would just dig through the, the covers and you'd look for something that was striking or looked interesting. And, you know, and then you'd get the album, you you know, get it home. Uh, me and my friends had a very rigorous system of sort of apprising the, the uh, value of records in so much as like, you know, one person would buy it everybody else would make a dub of it. And if the record was really great, then you would go buy it yourself because, uh, you know, anyone who has ever dealt with cassettes knows that the dub recording is never um, as loud or as crisp as the original one, you know, straight from the manufacturer. Um, and so, yeah, so we would just go in there and try to find tapes that looked, you know, interesting and, then you would just pour through the liner notes and sort of try to figure out, you know, who is this group or who is this artist and what is their connection? Where are they from and, and who, who else do they know? And I will say that the thank yous were instrumental in helping us try to put that together. Um, but yeah, you know, in an era where, you know, video music box was not yet on our radar, Hot 97 was still a dance format station. Um, you know, Yo MTV Raps was only on once a week, um, you know, and and I don't know if the source was either barely available, but it was certainly not on our radar. You know, um, we were just kind of like trying to figure out, again, you know, who are all these characters in, in, in this shared universe and what is their relationship to each other? And with the idea that somehow if we could decode this, we would find the absolute best music. You mentioned the word universe a couple of minutes ago, and I want to talk about this universe more about you growing up. Can you talk about your relationship with 42nd Street as a starting point, forging a career path, but also 42nd Street, for better or for worse, as the story of America in the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, 42nd Street was, you know, is obviously is a New York icon. And you have to imagine coming to New York in 
85, 84 years, you know, it's at a uh, sort of low point in the trajectory of, uh, of the, uh, you know, uh, square, not um, perhaps not culturally, but in terms of infrastructure and just like what's going on. It was a very sort of seedy place with a lot of like peep show boots and, you know, B movie theaters and kids, you know, teenagers running around doing the kind of derelict shit that teenagers do when, you know, there's no oversight from adults. Um, and so, you know, when I got there as a kid, it was definitely sort of both uh, quintessentially New York and iconic, but also uh, something that I understood to have a sense of, of danger. Um, and, you know, I, anyone who's watched any 80s comedies understands that they're, you know, the sort of general impression in the world of New York um, at that point was one of, you know, uh, imminent danger and all constant like sketchy things going on. Um, you know, the reality I think was not uh, as much that as what necessarily got broadcast and certainly wasn't my experience, um, you know, just being a kid running around New York City by myself. But um, yeah, and then, you know, uh Times Square would end up being, you know, really pivotal for me. You know, two of my most important work experiences would happen there. Um, when I was 16, I would get an internship at um Nervous Records, which was a small dance label that had signed Black Moon and Smith and Wesson and was really sort of the incubator of the bootcamp click. Um and then a few years later, I would end up working at MTV, kind of at the height of TRL madness when kids would line up around the block and uh you know stand their favorite artists from uh the little square in the middle uh, of Times Square um you know so Carson Daly and and the artists could see them out the window right. um and you know it was interesting because both of those experiences did happen kind of like as Times Square you know was going through this evolution um by the time I was there in the spring of 96 you know, Giuliani was in office and there was the Disneyfication of, of Times Square had just sort of started and they had just pushed a lot of the peep show boots and, and a lot of the sketchier stuff um, that had dominated that part of town um, in the 80s to the periphery. And you were starting to get, you know, um, the uh, Hard Rock Cafe and more kind of like middle of America tourist trap things. Um, and then by the time I was there in 2000, um, when I worked at MTV, it was very squeaky clean. And, you know, it's funny as a New Yorker, because I, I think about Times Square a lot. It's like one of those places that, I, you know, I can go sometimes five years at a time without ever walking through there. Um, but then I've had moments in my life you know, like when I worked at MTV, where I was there absolutely every single day for, you know, two years. So it, it, it's an interesting place. What about your place at Nervous? What were your duties? What was it you were hired to do? Well, hired might be overstating uh, the the relationship. But um, I, you know, I would show up after school, and I would basically just cut stickers and call record stores. Um, this was a time, you know, where there's very little data for record labels in terms of, you know, what is moving. And one of the, the key ways that 
you know, A&Rs, promotion people, um, you know, and, and I guess the bosses at the labels would find out what was sort of moving the needle outside of looking in billboard was to just have kids call uh, stores around the country and get, you know, on the ground feedback from people about like what records um, people are talking about and, you know, what what is flying off the shelves and what's sitting and, you know, just sort of get get a local vibe. Um, because, you know, at, at that time, it was so hard to get a sense of, you know, what was going on outside of your own sort of like local market. After that, you end up by chance in a similar situation in turn in a priority. What type of people used to come in and out of the office at that time? So the relationship between Nervous and Priority was interesting. Um, you know, I was an intern at Nervous doing kind of all of these menial chores over there. And one day, um, who walks in but Buckshot and Druha. And at the time, I sort of vaguely knew that uh, Bootcamp Click had, was changing their, their label situation. Um, you know, there had been some ads in the source for the Fab Five um, and which had priority logos on it. Um, but I didn't really understand what exactly that meant because I'm 16 years old and, you know, no one no. in the office is really talking about anything um, and, you know, or framing the relationship in any way um, for me. But it was very uh, abundantly clear from both gentlemen's body language um, that there was, they were not happy with the relationship that they had with, um, I believe his name is Mike Weiss, the owner of Nervous. And I just remember them storming in very, very upset and kind of slamming the door to go into his office. And then there's about 15 to 20 minutes of heated exchange coming through the walls. And I'm sort of sitting there nervously, um, no pun intended, um, <laughs> kind of trying to figure out what to do. And my boss, Chris at the time, um, was like, you know, man, you should probably break out. I think this is, I don't really know what's, what's going to happen next. And uh, so I grabbed my backpack and I said goodbye to him. And I walked out to the elevator um, to head back home. And, uh, you know, Nervous was in this giant pre-war uh, office building that probably had like 40 floors and they were up on 30 something floor. Um, and it had like three elevators. So typically if you hit the button, you might have to wait like somewhere between like five and 10 minutes for the elevator to finally come. Um, so I'm sitting there listening to my headphones, um, just like waiting for the elevator. And who comes around the corner, but Buckshot and Druha. And Buckshot makes eye contact with me and wow. is like, yo, were you just in the nervous office? And I was like, uh, yeah, I, I'm an intern. I was, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Black Moon, man. You, you guys are, are ill or something along those lines. And he's like, yo, Drew, do you have an extra one of those T-shirts? And I'm like, and he, Drew Hop reaches in his bag and pulls out a, uh, brown boot camp click shirt um which i guess is like the promo tee for the the group album um that they were i guess at the very earliest stages of working on right. and he's like yo do me a favor i want you to wear that every time you go to, up in that office and i'm like all right, <laughs> all right and i like hold on to the tee and we like get on the elevator and 
go down and I'm sort of, you know, and he's also like talking shit about, obviously whatever meeting they had was, did not go well. Um, and he was very upset about it. And so uh, I'm just standing there awkwardly um, trying to look like I'm not listening, but obviously listening. Yeah. And, uh, you know, about, I don't know, maybe six weeks later, I'm walking down 18th Street and I'm wearing this boot camp click shirt because, of course, this is now my new favorite T-shirt. And I run into a gentleman named James Azor who was in promotion at uh, Priority at the time. And he asks me, uh -huh. where'd you get that T-shirt? And I didn't really put it together, but, you know, there probably were like 150 of these made or something along those lines. Um and I explained the situation. He's like, oh, man, well, fuck nervous. Like, yo, you should come be an intern at, at Priority. And I was like, all right. And uh, so then that summer of 96, I ended up going in, and being an intern there. And, it, you know, in terms of job responsibilities, it was all basically exactly the same. Um, cutting right. stickers, calling radio stations, calling record stores, writing down, you know, jotting down notes, telling James what's what's moving at, you know, these local college radios, what's moving in these, you know, regional record stores, um, you know, up and down the East coast. And, uh, and then occasionally, you know, doing stuff like, uh, going to, uh, you know, the palladium and passing out flyers, um, you know, for whatever they had some group called the truth. I think that was, uh, R and B group that they were putting out and, you know, the highlight was, that, you know, every now and again, like Helta Skelta or uh, Organized Confusion would like pass through the office and I'd get to see them. And, you know, maybe, maybe they would, I would get get a fist bump and an acknowledgement or whatever, which, you know, at 16 was That's pretty everything. Much, yeah. I run, you know, run back to my friends and tell everybody about it. Seeing and experiencing all of that happen at that age, 17, 18 years old. What kind of impact did those experiences have on forging a meaning and turning your passion into purpose moving forward? Well, I mean, you know, I think to to sort of understand where I was coming from, you know, I have to explain that my, my dad made computer games when I was a kid. And so I grew up watching him both, you know, take ideas out of his head and turn them into these entertainment products. And then I also got to see him interact with people who were impacted by them. You know, I'd, I'd go to like gaming conventions with him and, you know, watch kids line up and he would sign the boxes for them and sit and talk to them about, you know, how he made them and why he made them the way they did. And so for me, I, you know, there was always in my mind a path to creating the sort of cultural entertainment products that I was excited by um and it seemed like something that was you know pe people did and and you know I, I i recognize that that is a very rare and privileged uh thing to to enjoy um but that meant that like you know from five six years old every time that i would get into something i wouldn't just think about how much i enjoyed the product i would think about how i wanted to make a product like that or participate in in the creation of making those products and you know that meant as a third and fourth grader me and my friends would you know draw up uh you know 
basically like blueprints for video games that we wanted to make and like sketch out what levels would look like you know if you imagine like a side scroller like mario um and then you know by the time we got into super into comics like you know we were everyone wanted to draw comics and i was you know i really thought probably up until i was about 17 that being a comic illustrator was going to be you know um my career path and you know when we when i got into high school um some of my friends you know got very into you know as we all sort of fell in love with rap music um some of them got very into the idea of making rap music and you know like anyone that likes rap when you're a teenager you know you're gonna have kids that like get drunk and freestyle and you right. know um friends that dj and friends that make beats and you know and were I, you, you ever know, that guy no i i certainly knew that i had no i'm not <laughs> i i'm very I'm, I'm i'm much better at writing than i am at talking um and i didn't have the sort of sense of uh improvisation that um you know, which is probably surprising listening to me talk here. No, just kidding. Um, but I, you know, I just never had that 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 ability. And then also, uh, you know, I never grew up playing musical instruments. So my natural sense of rhythm was always fairly limited. So, you know, while I really enjoyed sort of being a part of it, watching my friends excel at this. Um and I also got into sort of like a lot of the technical side of, you know, when we were, we were making beats, like we did it in the most scrappy way with like a Tascam four, four track recorder with, you know, the Gemini sampler. And then eventually we got the jam man. And so, you know, I got into kind of like understanding the sort of behind the scenes elements of it, but got it. And, you know, occasionally I would listen to records and like find breaks and pass them to my friends who are, you know, much more musically gifted than I to, you know, sort of make suggestions. But again, I, I just didn't have the wherewithal to, to actually make music. But I did have this interest in being a part of bringing this type of art to the world. And that was kind of the auspice of, you know, getting the internship at, at, uh, um, nervous, you know, I, I was a kid that again, was always obsessed with sort of being behind the scenes and being part of whether, whether it was making comics or, you know, making rap. And, um, as a very, as a young kid, I remember skateboarding over to 325 park Avenue where Marvel was based, um, in the eighties and, you know, sort of wishing on a star that you know i'm going to run into frank miller and this is going to like yield an internship and all of a sudden i'm going to be in the marvel bullpen which of right. course didn't um but that's the same urge that you know whatever five years later you know has me picking up the phone book and literally just looking for nervous records and being like oh yeah i could take the one train there and be up there in like 35 minutes cool i'm going to call them and see what happens um, and, you know, th but those experiences were interesting because it, it did give me sort of more behind the scenes, um, understanding of hip hop than, you know, obviously most of my friends or, um, I had certainly before that. Um, but it also really kind of informed me about what I didn't like. Um, and what I didn't like was one, I saw how contentious, um, the relationship between 
boot camp and uh, nervous was. And I sort of realized that, oh, just because these people are like helping bring this art to the world doesn't mean that like everyone's having fun together, um, which, you know, seems sort of uh, perhaps naive. But when you're 16, you really think like this is all going to be like rainbows and sunshine. Um, and then I get to, to priority. And at the time, priority didn't really have much in terms of music that I really wanted outside of bootcamp click and organized confusion. And, you know, the organized confusion album wouldn't come for another, I don't know, nine months or something like that. And uh, bootcamp click more or less operated, um, you know, by themselves, they would slide through the office or whatever, but they pretty much were a, a self-sufficient organization. And it left me feeling like I still really want to be involved with this, but I want to be involved with it in a much more creative capacity. Right. And I also want a role that can sort of give me deeper access to more facets of this universe. And that really led me to, you know, thinking about media um, and maybe working at magazines because, you know, I had grown up reading the source starting in 1991 um, with the, the end of the year issue. And as I gotten older, you know, things at the source had changed. I didn't really even, you know, I was not privy to staff changes or any of that kind of stuff, but I just knew that the, the content was no longer sort of in my aesthetic sweet spot. Um, and I ventured off to reading rap pages and then reading um, all of these underground zines that were coming out um, at, at the time, like Ego Trip and On The Go and Stress um, and eventually like Elemental and Elementary and, and all of these magazines. Um, nice. And I looked at particularly Ego Trip and On The Go and I thought that they were just such overwhelmingly creative products um, that it felt like you know, they are consuming this culture, but then adding on to the discourse and the 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 conversation around it in a really mm. meaningful way. It's not just I often think about like the sort of metaphor of like, you know, you have the 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 sun and then you have like reflected light. And like a lot of media outlets are just reflecting the light from the culture, the artists. And then you have some that are actually participants in shaping that culture through the dialogue that they create. And I thought, you know, Ego Trip really had kind of a, um, you know, special point of view on the music and, and the culture. And, and they were making fundamentally a magazine that, you know, had so much sort of depth to the content it was giving you you know the information about what's coming up but a level of analysis that was acerbic and biting and funny and deeply knowledgeable and deeply reverent but also cynical and jaded and hilarious and you know that just sort of resonated with me and I thought okay maybe maybe media is is where I can sort of have a place in this because I, I love this music. I think about it constantly. I talk about it with my friends constantly. 
um, maybe there's a place for me to be able to make, you know, uh, a print publication. And, you know, and again, this sort of gets back to then tying in the, the things with growing up reading comics and like, you know, there was something about publications and paper and um, layouts that I, I found really, you know, compelling. What is the sequence of events that happens from you illustrating a Jiggy comic strip to you writing and landing a position of senior editorial assistant at Ego Trip? How does that happen? So, you know, I had done these internships at the labels during the spring and summer of 96. Um, and then during the fall, I was pretty occupied dealing with like getting into college and all that kind of stuff. And um, my school, you know, basically because a lot of kids um, took advanced placement classes, which for whatever weird reason, end um, the first week of May, um, my school mandated that we all had to get uh, a six week internship. So from like May 1st to the middle of June um, to end our school year. And um, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm still really, really into this. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly like what my path is. Um, let me, let me try a magazine and see if that's it. And I thought, you know, at the time, the idea of like working at the source seemed almost like too daunting. Um, and also, frankly, my taste had become pretty aberrant from the source at that point, they were, you know, really, you know, this is at this point, there was a lot, I mean, it was a heavily leaning West Coast in its in its interest. And also, you know, this is sort of when you're getting um, the, you know, uh, schism between, quote unquote, the underground and like the shiny suit, you know, commercial rap. And, um, and so I thought, all right, you know what, let me try one of these underground zines. One, that seems like I might actually be able to land it. Two... I feel like maybe th this is more my tribe and these, these, I'm going to find some people there that like the same things as I do. Um, and so I sat, you know, literally in my bedroom and I looked at uh, on the go stress and ego trip. And I thought about like, which one really appealed to me most. And, you know, stress was cool, was never really my thing. Um, but I, I enjoyed it and I respected it. And on the go, I thought was, incredibly well done in terms of like the the art and the layout and i love the covers they were so funny um and then ego trip had these incredibly artistic um really well composed covers um fairly rough around the edges zine style art direction um but in the the richest and funniest writing and you know humor has always been something that is really important to me when I was into comics. I loved Justice League um, International, which was like, uh, you know, a heavily humor based comic. Um, and I thought, you know, Ego Trip, just like every single page has something that is just so hilarious and so um, pointed. Um, and I also, I also have no idea, like I, don't know what's fake and what's real that is Ted Bono a real person or is this all like a joke um you know the the chart like they'd have like charticles and stuff like that that were all like again it was this like incredibly acerbic sense of humor but it was also 
predicated on a deep knowledge of the subject matter. And so like, I couldn't put an ego trip in front of, you know, some random kid at my high school and expect them to understand the jokes. Cause if you don't really know rap music, it's not that yeah. funny. Um, but for me, it was like laugh until you cry funny um, because it's all of these coded jokes. And again, I really loved, you know, just like when I first got into rap and when I got into comics, like I love the idea of, you know, having a puzzle that you're sort of solving. It's, you know, it's a level of mental engagement that is, I think, really satisfying. Um, and then you add on top of that, um, you know, laughing until you cry is a great feeling. Like there's not much in the world that feels better than that. Um, and so I just called them and I called and I called and I called and I called and I called. And after two weeks, uh, a woman named Vicky, who was running the uh, ad sales team there, or team, she was she was the ad sales team there, uh, called me back and brought me in for an interview. And on Valentine's Day, 1997, um, I sat in this little one room office on 368 Broadway with Chairman Mao and Gabe Alvarez and kind of gave them my pitch. And, you know, they uh, invited me in. And I think within like the first week or two, it must have been like the first week, um, they asked me if I wanted to write or I, you know, if I aspired to write. And I said, not really. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of making magazines, but like, I, I don't, I'm not really a writer beyond writing term papers at this point. Um, and then, and I said, you know, but I am an illustrator and I, I, you know, I'm trying to go to go to college for that. And they asked me to do uh, a comic called Jiggy, um, which was basically um, taking the sort of tropes of Ziggy, a very famous newspaper strip, um, right. and then sort of like supplanting um, some really sort of nuanced contextual hip hop industry humor on top of it. And uh, of course, you know, I jumped at the opportunity, went home that night, stayed up all night, knocked out a, a rough one, uh, a rough draft of it. And the guys thought it was funny. Um, you know, I think they had a very sort of punk rock aesthetic. And the fact that my illustrations were pretty crude and not all that good um, kind of appealed to them. Um, and then they <laughs> ended up asking me to illustrate a few more things in the issue. Um, and, Backing up for a second, not yeah. to cut you short, that initial draft you go home to develop, does that change when it gets published in Ego Trip? No, I mean, basically, I I came back to the office with a, a, a penciled version of it. And I was like, what do you guys think? And they were like, great, just finish it. And so I sat in the office that, that afternoon and inked it with some little Micron pens and gave it to them. And I guess they, you know, they brought it to the art director um, and she scanned it in. Um, and that was sort of the, uh, you know, it was, it was a very DIY operation. Let me tell you that. Nice. I joined um, Ego Trip about, I don't know, six weeks before Brent Rollins did. So they had an art director, um, who had done kind of, you know, the first, I don't know, eight issues or 10 issues or whatever it was. Um, and, but she was, from what I could tell, at least from being there for that, her last issue, sort of not as involved um, in the sort of overall uh, process of making the book. She would sort of take what they gave her and then make it make sense and 
send it off to the um, to the uh, printer. Um, perhaps she had been involved in the early parts. Um, but by that point, it felt like it, it was kind of like an assembly line. Um, and yeah, so it was just kind of like, you know, no one there was really weighing in on it. Eventually, Brent would join um, the squad. He would come from Rap Pages uh, probably in like April or early May. And then, you know, the aesthetics of Ego Trip would really come into focus and he would sort of take the whole, um, you know, visual identity of the magazine up a notch. And he and I would work incredibly close. Um, I, you know, I did a lot of the sort of grunt work of, you know, scanning in images, creating bitmaps, mm. um, you know, color correcting things, you know, anything to kind of free up time so that he could do the actual creative heavy lifting on the book. Um, and then at that point, um, I would say, you know, I felt like I was really sort of part of more of a team flow. They were getting ready to ship the, um, this is the the Biggie Smalls issue uh, with the red cover where he's in the Chinese restaurant, um, which was my first issue. Um, and uh, I think Riggs Morales, who was a editor at The Source at the time, had um, agreed to write a Chub Rock review for them. And for whatever reason, Riggs got caught up at the last minute and couldn't do it. And you know, it was the 11th hour, the guys were getting ready to ship the thing. And, you know, it was just sort of like one more piece of work that got like washed back up on their um, shores. And I was standing there when they, you know, Chairman Mao, I believe was lamenting uh, a little frustration around having to figure this out in the in the last minute. And I just said, hey, I, I could do it. Um, and they were like, all right, you have 24 hours. Um, and I went home and took, you know, all my old copies of the source and vibe and ego trip and like reread all of my favorite reviews, the ones that had like jumped out to me uh, as particularly awesome. And um, sort of, you know, constructed a uh, framework of, you know, how do these things actually work structurally? And mm. let me just try to sort of like emulate this. And I'm not going to try to do any like, you know, high diving acrobatics or like get any super great jokes off. Let me just get get the car from, you know, A to B um, without crashing. And uh, so I wrote, you know, I listened to the album and wrote the review. And, um, you know, thankfully, Jeff was a great editor and came in and added, you know, some punchiness uh, to to the review. Um, and, you know, that kind of like when the magazine came out and I saw my name there, you know, I I got beaten by the bug of like, I, I think I can do this. And like, again, I, you know, I spend in a probably unhealthy amount of time thinking about rap music and talking about rap music. And here's this vehicle for me to channel that into something that's constructive and potentially entertaining and, you know, for, for a consumer and also, you know, uh, an actual contribution to the culture that I'm so, you know, in love with. 
Reputation, sex appeal, ready for the sweet spermin'. Bank accounts all full, love, interest be earning. Ben Franklin's determined if you get that higher learning. The Million Man March, starring Mark Furman. It can happen. Lyrical dawn is the charm for the rapping. Gift spliff for Romans cause many fetal comas. No blood donors. A credit diabetics who drink sodas. While in the pens lie the roughneck soldiers. What happened? Niggas must a nap. What happened to all of that Malcolm X shit before he got trapped? Before he got capped? What I mean capped when they put his name on all those cute little Spike Lee hats. And then they say black is back. Where when? Niggas now only care about the rent. And how to pay rent. And how they tribe squad spend. Black powder nose land crews or range road. Why you running for when you're for running? Nigga who drove your mind? Who are some of the writers whose work you studied for your first review? Who are some of those writers who are still mm. writing today that you studied? I mean, Chris X was always a big one for me. Sasha Jenkins, um, you know, of Ego Trip, Elliot Wilson, Chairman Mao, Gabe Alvarez. I, I remember he wrote uh, a review of um, Warren G's second album that he said something along the lines of like, um admitting that you like Warren G is like admitting to your your boy that you still wear pajamas that zip up um <laughs> with the feet and I always thought that that was a really hilarious uh mental picture that's great um and I'm trying to think who else um was really was I really into um you know uh, some of the older source critics obviously maddie c um you know the the unsigned hype was incredibly influential on me yeah. um john Schechter, um aka jay the, the sultan um you know reef although you know i only caught the very tail end of his sort of writing career um and then you know uh, the dream hamptons um um the kevin powell's uh, Michael Gonzalez, um, trying to think who, Robert Morales, um, you know, some of the guys from, from Vibes Stable that I thought were really, really gifted. Um, I mean, there, you know, there are so many, um, who I sort of learned to appreciate over the years. Um, but those are, those are sort of the core, the core people to me. You know, really, it was like those early source people, a few of the big, big name vibe writers, Joan Morgan, um, Trisha Rose. Um, and then the Ego Trip guys, I really felt like all five of them wrote on a completely different level. And again, because I, I thought I felt like, you know, to use sort of the it's like, you know, they say like clowns are like the best acrobats. Um I felt like the the way that they were able to layer humor into this very incisive biting criticism that was still celebratory and not mean-spirited was really a feat and something to aspire towards. Um, you know, like I said about that little Warren G thing, it's like, because those are, those visuals are the, mo those are the things that like, I think stick with a, a reader and sort of bounce around in their head, apparently for me, 25 years later. Um, and yeah, and and 
again, I just sort of, you know, as with drawing and, you know, every other sort of discipline that I became interested in, it it, it just became like, all right, I'm, I'm going to put in my 10,000 hours and see if I can, you know, really make something out of this. So how does your perspective then change from, you know, learning about yourself with Ego Trip and this creative process? And what did Ego Trip teach you about crystallizing a vision? Well, you know, I guess I would have to say that the thing that I, I learned most from Ego Trip as a collective was really about the power of team building and the power of collaboration. Um, those five guys are all straight up geniuses in their own unique ways. Um, and their geniuses are very complementary to one another. Um, you know, Elliot is incredibly ambitious and incredibly competitive and incredibly driven um, and also obsessed with rap music and all rap music, like the good, the bad, the new, the old, things that came out 40 years ago and what's going to come out tomorrow. It doesn't matter. He has a, an, a, an obsessive desire to want to understand and know about it and be immersed in it. Um, you know, Sasha is, has a very sort of eclectic set of interests and influences from skating and BMX biking to punk rock music, um, you know, to sort of like more straight up, you know, rock and roll to, you know, knowing also tons about hip hop music. And then also, you know, looking at everything through the, the lens of race and the lens of class um, and having this incredible sense of humor. And Chairman Mao is, you know, uh, he has the obsession that Elliot has, except for him, it, it was always about the production of the music. And so he knows these insanely detailed, he has this insanely detailed understanding of how the music is made and what is going on and why things that people like are liked and what, what is animating and, you know, sort of driving that interest. Um, and he also has an integrity and a sort of um, a seriousness about everything that he does. And, you know, you can see it in, you know, the, the interviews that he's done on Red Bull Music Academy um, with people like Doom. Um, you know, to the Ram LZ exhibit that he that he curated, like he cares so much about making sure that every detail of the art and the process and the artist intent is reflected in whatever it is that he is making. Um, Gabe is absolutely one of the funniest people that I've ever met. Um, and also so deeply into hip-hop music but coming from LA has a very different sort of perspective um and you know reference base than the other guys who grew up you know in Queens and and Boston respectively um but Gabe has is like a natural storyteller in a certain way and he and I would you know 25 years later would collaborate on some Cypress Hill comics together um but, you know, he has this ability to 
mine reality and turn it into fiction in a way that is, you know, certainly beyond my capacity. Um, but it, 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 he was able to sort of inject a lightness into a lot of what Ego Trip did and, and a sort of um, surreality um, that I think, you know, drove a lot of the kind of like more uh, absurdist humor that they had in there. And then, you know, Brent is the, the visualizer of, of the crew and he has, you know, this sort of supernatural ability to distill what is interesting about something and then communicate that in a coherent visual language. Um, and, you know, and has his own sort of um, innate sense of storytelling and sense of humor. And, uh, you know, he and I would work for, I don't know, six or seven years together on uh, Complex. And, you know, you know, those covers are like a, a, a dive into the mind of Brent Rollins and really, you know, represent a conversation and a back and forth and a dialogue between him and me, um, where a lot of times, you know, he would sort of be pushing me to explain to him why I wanted to put this person on the cover or what was so interesting about them or what was their story or why did it matter? And then he would come back with a visual representation of that. Um, anyway, having, having sung all their praises uh, at some length, I, you know, I got to watch these five guys work together seamlessly and despite being all very, very, very different and motivated by very, very different things um, come together to create one product. And, you know, when I, I say come together to create one product, I mean, literally like, you know, Elliot and Sasha would come to the office at the end of the day where they, they worked at Vibe and The Source respectively. And, right. you know, I would get to sit and watch these five guys sit around one computer with Chairman Mao as the hands behind the, the keyboard. And they would come up with these charts or write, you know, Ted Bono's editorial, the Ted editorial, um, or Galen Bono's, you know, column um, or the ego trip fiction. Um, and it, I, I imagine it is probably what like being in the SNL writer's room in 1977 was like. Um, but it taught me that you have to find your tribe and you have to find your people who augment you and make you better. Um, and you have to have, you know, sort of like that overlap shared part of the Venn diagram where, you know, you guys can find that common ground that the 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 product that you collaboratively make lives in. But in order for that product to really be robust and to really be bulletproof, you need to have all of these sort of complementary but different perspectives. And you have to figure out how to manage them. And uh and again, watching those guys as a 17, 18 year old was so instructive for how I thought about it. You know, it it was a real revelation because, you know, when people talk about art, a lot of times they talk about like, you know, there's this idea of like some person like going off, you know, into the hills by themselves and then they like emerge with this amazing, you know, 
piece of literary fiction or this amazing album and they like come back down, you know, like Moses with the Ten Commandments. And it's like, sure, there, every now and again, you you have a person like that. You have a Jay-Z, you have an Eminem, um, someone who can just kind of like be both the alpha and omega of it, but it doesn't have to be like that. And that there is a way to work with other people. And that frankly, if you can make that collaboration work, everyone can have so much fun together. And that was the thing was I was watching these guys, you know, and I'm 17 and they're probably like 26 or 27, which at the time I thought was like grown and old, which now at 44 is sort of hilarious. But, um, you know, I'm watching them sit around and like tell jokes ostensibly to make each other laugh. And like, that is the litmus test. And it's like, who can, who can top whoever spoke last and not in a, you know, in a biting negatively competitive way, but in, in a way that like, we're all trying to reach for the ceiling, but each one of us is pushing the ceiling higher. Um, mm. And, you know, I, I spent the rest of my career really trying to emulate and recreate that, you know, in my own way. And you can look at mass appeal and you can look at complex and you can look at idea generation and each one of those things is, you know, a, a, a different um, attempt to try to, you know, find that, that magic and that chemistry. When you think about your contribution to Ego Trip, what is it that you think you brought that changed the perspective of Ego Trip as a magazine and pushed the envelope? I would not say that I did that at all, to be honest. I think the, you know, I was fortunate to be in those rooms and to spend time with those guys. And, you know, I think as we've all grown older and matured, I, I've managed to sort of create meaningful relationships with, with each of those five guys. And, you know, I would hope um, if you were to ask them, they they might offer ways in which I have like changed their perspectives or or added to how they think about the world. Um, but Ego Trip was their their deal. And you know, I I again was so grateful for the opportunity to apprentice myself to them and and to contribute to helping them realize their vision. Um, but I wouldn't go as far as saying that I shaped it in any real meaningful way. The question remains, which MCs will reign? Which ones will gain? How many suckers will feel pain? Ask yourself the same question. Do you have a favorite issue with Ego Trip? Probably the Gangstar issue. Um, I that was the one where I really felt like everything was firing on all cylinders. Cause you know, I, I got there during Biggie um, and that was sort of the last of the black and white newsprint um, issues, right. which I thought, you know, there's, there's a, a really charming DIY quality to them, but you know, I think all those guys would admit it, it wasn't necessarily their vision, like, fully realized. And then, you know, Brent gets there for the Rakim issue. Um, and that was kind of the first time that I think 
the four other guys realized what an asset having a visual storyteller within their sort of core cipher would be. And so there's like, it's, it's a much more visually dynamic magazine, but I don't think when they went into creating the stories necessarily, they were necessary. They weren't thinking in terms of what the layouts or how the sort of images could complement or, um, you know, uh, make this, make the stories more impactful. Right. And then we all kind of like got that back from the printer. And I think there was a, a realization of like, oh, okay, here's the things that worked. And here's the things that actually, you know, this, this magazine is head and shoulders more sophisticated than any of the previous issues. Um, but we're just scratching the surface at this integration between art and content in terms of the storytelling. And then you have the, uh, the Gangstar issue where I feel like it really came into its own. And of course the last issue is amazing, um, but it's always, you know, it's a little bit bittersweet for me because one, it was the last um, issue. And then also just weirdly as an aesthetics guy, um, the the cover was never my favorite. Like I absolutely love basically every single other one of the covers that that one to me was kind of like cool when you think about like the nas cover i think danny clinch shot that um or the smith and wesson you know they're in profile and that you have sort of this racked focus um or you know uh ghost face where they're playing with the open aperture in front of the womb mansion um or red man with the, the mic hanging so close to his face with the extreme close-up like all of those i, I think are iconic images um you know or the way that uh brent you know took the the um rakim photo which was a little soft in the focus and like you know did the overlay of the text and the the spray paint um and then the contrast of the the blues and the purples in the in the photo and the red on the spray paint you know all of those i don't know for me i just thought those are like iconic indelible images yeah. the last one is like it's cool you're talking about covers that stopped time back then yeah well i mean you know we had so much less access to you know hip-hop and to you know so i mean celebrity in general of course but as far as i was concerned you know to rap celebrities in in specific and right so you know i think that there was a real effort both on the part of the magazines and on the part of the musicians to really make the most of these moments um and you know also there was, you know, the economics of print publishing were very different from the economics of, you know, digital media and the sort of race to the bottom. So there was, you know, even at a a, a very DIY scrappy place like Ego Trip, there was uh, a, you know, there were resources um, to to you know make these sort of iconic images, and you had again the buy-in from the musicians because they were excited to do that.
So you leave Ego Trip in 98 at a time when there's a big turning point for when visuals started to change in hip hop. And labels like Bad Boy are thinking about not just what artists were going to sound like, but also what they would look like. Can you talk about the impact that signified culturally? I, I think that, you know, hip hop has been in constant flux. And I th I think in, you know, its earliest or earlier period, you were seeing a change that was happening very fast and very furiously. Um, and I, you know, I think that that the change that happens in sort of 96 to 98, you know, via Bad Boy, um, you know, is certainly looked at as a inflection point. Um, and I think perhaps people think of it in an outsized way because the music was really starting to permeate sort of the mainstream at that, at that point. But I mean, as a person that had been following hip hop since, you know, the late 80s, you know, really, if you look at from 86 to 96, the music is changing every 12 to 18 months. Um, and you have, you know, people like Kwame goes from, you know, being a modestly but solidly successful artist in, you know, 1990, 1991 to being a punchline in a Biggie song in 1994. Um, and you have groups like uh, Brand Nubian, you know, going from having like a super positive outlook on the world and colorful aesthetic and, you know, uh, being styled in dashikis um, to wearing combat boots and baggy jeans and, you know, making past the gat and punks jump up to get beat down. Um, you know, and so I, I say that to say like, the music was constantly evolving. I, I think that what happened in 96, 97, 98, was really like a bifurcation of the scene where you had sort of the quote unquote mainstream commercial rap and the underground. And the commercial mm. rap was aspiring to exist in a world, you know, alongside, you know, pop music um, and, you know, on MTV and the underground rejected that um, and, and, and wanted to make rap for people that, you know, were sort of steeped in, you know, the cultural context of rap. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that was a, a big shift, but again, I think, you know, I had been there when like, you know, Naughty by Nature and Tribe Called Quest and uh, Cypress Hill were sort of at the, center of the locus and then you know two years later everything has moved to the west coast and now death row is you know sort of yeah. quote, quote, running um the scene aesthetically and then two years later biggie has you know taken it back and him and puff are redefining what is cool and popular so you know i i don't i don't necessarily think it was an aberration as much as it was kind of just um, a cycle that happened to be um, that was happening on an increasingly large snowball, if that makes any sense. 
Let's take it back to the streets, mother. Yeah, I'm right here, dog. Where my dogs at? We right here, dog. Where my dogs at? No must I go through to show you shit is real And I ain't really never gave a fuck how niggas fit Rob and I still Like cause I want to, cause I have to And don't make me show you with the Mac If you don't know by now, then you slip I'm on some bullshit that's got me jacking niggas flipping Let my man in it stay pretty But I'ma stay shitty Cruddy, it's all for the money Is you with me? Get the bitches, now I can make the crime and when it's on, we transform like Optimus Prime Out on the head, roll out, let's make it happen we ain't gon' get it with this, we'll take it cap Bustin' off, dustin' off, get softest niggas Money with the biggest mouth, yo, let's off this nigga Come off this nigga, he never made a sound Breathe too fucking hard and he gettin' bust down Yeah, 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 yeah niggas wanna be killers Get at me, dog. Yeah, niggas wanna kill us Get at me, dog. Yeah, niggas want the bread Get at me, dog. So, I worked at Ego Trip during the summer of nine, I mean, during the, the spring of 97. And uh, as I graduated high school, I went, you know, sort of hat in hand to Sasha. Um, and, you know, knowing that Ego Trip was not going to be in a position to give me a summer job, but explaining, you know, all right, I'm about to graduate high school and I'm going to NYU in the fall, but um, I need to get a summer job. You know, hey, do you know anybody that might be hiring? Or, you know, is there something that I can do that's like at least adjacent to kind of you know what I've been doing at, at Ego Trip, you know, and I'm thinking, I know Sasha sort of knows Mike D, and maybe he can help me get a clerk job at X at the XL Clothing Store, um, extra large clothing store over on, on um, what you call it, uh, Lafayette Street, um, or something along those lines. And Sasha's like, yeah, actually. You know, my guy Dave Bree just took over the uh, fact checking department at Vibe, um, and he needs to hire a new fact checker. Um, I'll vouch for you, you know, but you just got to do me a favor and like, look, Dave will not be in on it, but you got to just front like you're 20 years old because they're not going to hire a 17 year old um, at Vibe. And I went and met with Dave Bree, um, rest in peace, um, and. You know, we went and got ham sandwiches and around the block from Vibe, and he explained to me what a fact checker was, and I sort of expressed my interest in the culture, and you know, gave him a sense of, um, I guess, the breadth of my knowledge about hip hop and just broadly about music. And he was like, "All right, look, I'm going to give you a shot to do this. You know, please don't make me look bad. Um, you know, if Sasha says you're good money, then you know." you're you're good so yeah. um i went and worked that summer between um high school and and uh college at at vibe and while i was there um i got an opportunity to write uh you know maybe one or two clips um during the summer and um perhaps most importantly i met a gentleman named Jesse Washington who the following year would become the editor in chief of Blaze, which was Vibe's brand new or then brand new rap magazine. And I met Jesse and I knew that he was sort of like a bedroom DJ who would like sort of, you know, do parties for his friends and that kind of thing. And during that summer, um, the group Lord Tariq and Peter Guns, who at the time were just two guys from Money Boss Players, put out a 12 inch um, on a piece of red, you know, white label vinyl 
um, that just said deja vu. And I heard it at Fat Beats one morning and thought it was phenomenal and just brought it in and was like, Jesse, you're going to love this song. You need, you need to hear this. And he had a turntable in his office. He listened to it. It was like, oh shit, this is crazy. And uh, a year later, uh, he calls me up in the spring of 1998 and is like, hey man, um, you know, I'm starting this new thing called Blaze. Um, it's going to be like sort of vibes version of the source, um, you know, and I'm I'm putting together my team. Do you want to be an editorial assistant on the launch issue? Um, you know, we're going to start in earnest, I think in May. And I was like, awesome. Yeah. I was like, sure. Just like, what, you know, what made you think of that? And he's like, yo, you put me onto that Lord Tariq and Peter Guns record. That shit is like blowing up everywhere now. You were like eight months, nine months in front of that. I need that kind of ear um, on the staff. And, you know, he let me, he let me get down with, with Blaze. And, you know, Blaze was a really incredible experience. Um, I learned a ton and, you know, it, it's weird. It's, it is sort of been memory hold um, in the annals of rap. Um, but Blaze had a lot of crazy chaotic, dramatic moments. Um, but we also made a bunch of really awesome magazines. Um, and, you know, I think really added on to uh, the dialogue at the time. What were some of those crazy and dramatic moments you speak of? Well, the, the first was when we were putting the first issue to bed, one of the things that Jesse had wanted to do to sort of differentiate the magazine from our competitive peers was he wanted to engage the artists with the reviews, which was an idea that was uh, very ambitious. And I think some people on the staff thought a little crazy, um, but uh, he was committed and thought that this was going to really sort of like engender more dialogue um, within the artistic, you know, the artist community and offer them a platform to respond to criticism. Um, and also give the the readers, you know, the sense of satisfaction of knowing that the critique that was levied at the record actually did get back to the artist. Um, you know, I, I think the cynical take would kind of be like, well, what when you spend two years making a piece of art and someone tells you they think it stinks, like, how, how are you supposed to respond to that? Or like, how many different ways can you respond to that? Like either you're going to be pissed off and tell them that they have no fucking idea what they're talking about, or you're going to like be fake humble and try to like view it as a constructive thing and be quietly upset about it. Or you're just going to be like deeply hurt, which, you know, all, all of which are sort of like, I think that's the about the spectrum of reasonable responses you could ask from like a you know, highly sensitive, probably very insecure artist about, you know, having put this body of work into the world and 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 getting this feedback. Or the review is going to be overwhelmingly positive and then they're just going to say that they love the review, which of course you love a review in which someone, you know, says you're great. Um, but it was a novel idea and we tried it. And um, in that first issue, there was, the lead review was, uh, the artist Cannabis, who at the time was, you know, uh, incredibly anticipated. He was coming off of a, you know, run of mixtape appearances on Clue. Just every freestyle was crazier, 
longer, you know, more jaw dropping than the last. Yeah. And he linked up with Wyclef Jean of the Fugees. And, you know, we were all kind of like incredibly curious to see what, you know, here's this like just rabid battle rapper with the musical guy, musical guy from the Fugees. Um, what is this possibly going to sound like? Um, and of course, the album was, I think, pretty universally agreed upon to be underwhelming and not what uh, fans were looking for. And the review had uh, reflected that. And so in the 11th hour, right before we put the, the issue to press, um, I guess Jesse and the music editor, Dowie, went to sit with Cannabis and Clef to, I guess, read them their review um, okay. and get their reaction. And um, the reaction was not good, um, according to the editorial that Jesse published in that first issue. Um, Wyclef pulled a gun on him and wow. threatened him. And... He, you know, Jesse turned this into the sort of um, uh, animating, you know, uh, narrative for his launch issue editorial, um, you know, kind of used it, I think, as a narrative device to talk about how what we were doing was different and confrontational and exciting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as you can imagine, this was extremely controversial and, you know, made news and was picked up by tabloids as well as MTV News. And um, Wyclef, um, I believe, first denied it and made a, uh, like, sang a song on MTV News trying to say that, like, basically Jesse was clout chasing to sell mm -hmm. magazines. Um, but then privately admitted it to some rap pages editor who then told MTV news. And then that ran. So this was like a several, several news cycles of gossip fodder. Um, but that was pretty crazy. Um, then a few months later, we quite by accident. And I say by accident because we didn't know that it was even a secret revealed who the mad rapper was that the mad rapper was Derek <laughs> D. Angeletti. And um, he and some of his associates came to the office um, asking to speak to whoever was responsible for this. And Jesse, you know, being a mensch and being the, the guy in charge, agreed to go meet them in the conference room to talk about it. And um, I believe, you know, they assaulted him with a chair and he ended up suing them and um, walking away with some some money. Um, but that was also a really crazy moment. You know, I, I definitely remember, like, I think I got to the office immediately after, um, Jesse had been taken to the hospital and, you know, as you can imagine, everyone was quite shaken up by this. Um, and also really quite mystified because like I said, going into this, none of us had thought that the identity of the mad rapper was a secret and so right. we had put in some article like the mad rapper and then we put in parens like derek d angeletti and again with no malice or 
feeling that we were like, you know, letting the cat out of the bag. It was, you know, if you were in the industry and you'd heard DDOT talk, you knew his voice and it was obviously him. Um, and then the third time was um, about a year after that. Um, we we're working on an issue of Blaze and there was a young man um, who had recently come on as an intern that Jesse knew from his time in Yale up in New Haven. Uh, the, the dude was from um, the dude was from Harlem, I believe, and he had recently gotten out of jail. And you know, I was kind of unfamiliar exactly with the details, but I understood that he had been exonerated from uh, a murder charge that he had done a couple years on, but, you know, through the appeal process, it was proven that he was not responsible for this. And so Jesse writes an editorial for Blaze about, you know, the criminal justice system and, you know, wrongful imprisonment and, you know, how this gentleman is turning over a new leaf. And, and you know, this is sort of, I think, exemplifies Jesse's personal commitment to social justice as well as Blaze's. Now, the person, the murder that he was exonerated for was the son of Gerald Levine. Gerald Levine was the CEO of Time Warner. Time Warner had been the owner of Blaze, of Vibe. Uh, Gerald Levine had sold Vibe to a, a gentleman named John Miller, I believe. Miller Publishing owned Vibe and Blaze. Um, so this editorial somehow ends up moving through the company up to the, you know, to the top, to the tippy top. Um, and there's an objection made by the ownership. And I don't really know the details of this because I was 19 and I was not privy to everything that was going on. But mm -hmm. my understanding was that um, Jesse was told, you can't run this editorial in the magazine. Um, you know, Bob looks at Gerald like that's his big brother or his, his you know, mentor and him and the family reject um, the court's ruling on this kind of thing. Um, and they're not comfortable with this. And, and I, you know, Bob's not comfortable with this. And so Jesse, you know, rightfully stood on um, his ground and said, no, this is, you know, this is the right thing to do both, you know, I mean, just objectively, this is the morally correct thing to do. The kid was exonerated. He did years of time, uh, you know, on the wrong charges. And like, I, I everyone feels bad for the situation. Um, and, you know, we all obviously hope that there, that justice is served and, and that the real perpetrators of this crime, you know, um, are found. But, you know, the, the, the courts have ruled and he has been found, you know, um, innocent beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And that was not well received by the ownership. And essentially he was unwilling to change things and um, they fired him. And uh, it wow. was, uh, it, it, it ended in a very uh, 
cataclysmic uh, back and forth. I remember, you know, I basically got on, I'm coming up from NYU and I get on the uh, elevator there and there's like, you know, one of the sort of C-suite guys from the vibe, you know, from Miller Publishing is, is on there and he, and I sort of make eye contact. He knows who I am from just seeing me around the vibe office. And he's got these like three big dudes in suits that look like, you know, men in black kind of thing. And again, I've sort of known that this is like a controversy that's been going around. And then, you know, Jesse has talked to the staff about it and we all kind of, you know, agree with him and have his back. But, you know, um, I sort of assumed this would be come, you know, come to some diplomatic solution. And I go walk in, these gentlemen leave the elevator. I go uh, drop my back book bag off. And, you know, the next thing I know, I hear they're screaming. Um, I come running out of my little cubicle. I see a turntable go flying through the air and like land in a wall. And um, eventually Jesse ends up being escorted out um and we are told that he is no longer an employee of the company and we're not allowed to talk to him anymore um and uh yeah and you know as you can imagine I'm, this is a young staff um i'm 19 at the time most of the the rest of the the people on, on the team are you know in their early 20s and we are all just beside ourselves mimi who uh, yeah. was the managing editor and would become the next editor in chief is, you know, crying and, and, you know, trying to sort of like hold the rest of the, 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 the unit together. We end up meeting and I feel like a few days later, Jesse swung by the office. And although he wasn't allowed in the office, we all went downstairs and kind of like talked to him on the street. And, you know, he was sort of like guys like, you know, basically I appreciate that you all ride for me and I appreciate that you all, you know, think that I'm in the right, but like, these are your jobs. And like, I don't expect you to all like bounce on account of, you know, this situation. Um, and, you know, we were, you know, uh, Mimi ended up being elevated um, and becoming editor in chief and taking over. And um, yeah, yeah things, things kept on moving. And, you know, I think through all of that, you know, I, I, it's hard to even wrap my head around all of the lessons that I learned in, you know, those multiple incidents. Um, but suffice to say, um, I grew up a lot as a professional, um, and whatever rose colored glasses still remained on my, on, uh, on my face after, you know, a couple of years in this industry that really, ripped them off. Um, and I understood exactly what this was. That's insane. Truly incredible. What a story, man. What well, a story. Also crazy. You know who else was in the office when that happened? Tragedy Gaddafi. No way of all people. Yeah. I just remember seeing him like while all this melee is happening and I'm standing there and like, you know, dudes are fighting and shit is crazy. I just see like Trag stick his head out from the hallway. <laughs> y'all really crazy up in here it's like what um yeah that was a that was a that was a crazy time and after that you know blaze sort of like found its footing and i think you know to mimi's credit she 
did her best to kind of like, you know, shake off all of the dramas and find a new creative focus for the, for the book and, you know, turn it into something, um, you know, that, uh, had its own lane. Um, unfortunately, Vibe would actually end up pulling the plug, um, about a year later, um, in the spring of 2000, um, right when I was finishing up, uh, finals, um, at NYU, I remember coming up to the office and just like, opening the door and everyone's looking shell-shocked and being like, Hey, so it's over. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Just, just, when, just when I thought we were catching a vibe. No pun intended. Yes. No pun intended. In terms of vibe pulling a plug, what were those moments like leading up until that point? I'm curious as to what was there an issue that helped you, I guess, establish a sense of where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do at Blaze. Um, I mean, I think that I learned the most, you know, again, like so much, so much of what I learned was really just watching the grownups around me, um, operate and seeing how they moved. And, you know, I like, I got from, you know, Jesse, Jesse was an incredible leader and like, you know, nobody on the staff worked harder than Jesse. Um, and that, that was, I thought, you know left a really, really remarkable impression on me. You know, Mimi brought a sort of uh, canny to the positioning of the book that, you know, would really inform how I thought about running Complex. You know, the first year at Blaze, we really earnestly tried to go head to head with the source. And honestly, mostly to a series of losses. Um, and we had, you know, at that point in any given month, there was this really one, you know, incredibly hot rapper who demanded, you know, uh, the attention of a cover. And, you know, the source was a legacy publication in the space at that point. And we would, you know, again and again and again, just lose out to the source. And if you look at those first year Blaze covers, we basically had the artists that appeared on the source's covers, but a couple months or a month after the source had them. Um, and, you know, when Mimi got there, I think she saw an opportunity in shifting the focus of the book forward and leaning into, you know, 1998 had a incredible um sort of uh emergent class of new artists and you know where the source had done like uh i remember this in in the spring of 98 they did like a you know group cover that had like dmx and corrupt and maybe the locks and nori or something like that it was like seven artists and Mimi's take was like, well, if all those artists can only share a cover at the source, what if we just lean in on the ones that we think are really going to break? And all of a sudden we started doing a Beanie Siegel cover and a Lil Wayne cover and a Trina and Trick Daddy cover. Um, and that was really where Blaze started to find its own voice and its own space within the culture. 
Um, and, you know, combine that with um, the art director, Mark, really coming into his own, him and uh, a woman named Sarah Friedman ended up shooting um, a lot of our covers. And so the book got a real visual identity that was very punchy and poppy. And I think fit within um, the sort of aesthetic language that had been established by people like Hype Williams in kind of music videos of the time. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, we just, you know, we, we took these gambles on, on emergent young artists and, you know, they might not have had the splash of um, having, you know, sort of the, the biggest power hitter at any given moment, but it made uh, Blaze sort of a complimentary read that didn't try to compete to be the source, but offered you a totally different experience. And our sales went up through that, I think, because, you know, we ended up getting a lot of people who bought the source who would also buy Vibe. And then also a bunch of, uh, you know, a sort of younger demographic that was interested in, um, you know, didn't care about people who had been a star four years ago. Because if you're in high school, someone who was famous four years ago was famous when you were, you know, 10. And that's, you know, they seem like old and old news to you. Um, and so, yeah, watching, watching that, I really, you know, I would utilize a lot of that when I, when I stepped into the, you know, hot seat at, at um, Complex. What's going on if you are still listening to this episode and enjoying a podcast? Why not become a patron of Fly Fidelity at patreon.com slash flyfidelity. Becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week. It also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter, you'll be able to access exclusive content to you, including patron updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, early access, and so much more. What about your memories of featuring Eminem in Blaze? What's the story behind that? Well, you know, in that that period, um, you know, I was just a underground rap nerd that was going out to, you know, every showcase at, you know, the New York and Poets Cafe or the Cooler or SOBs or whatever. And then on the weekends, um, I would go hang out at Fat Beats, um, just the way I used to go sit around comic stores, you know, um, in my adolescence, you know, I, I was friends with Max Glazer, who was the DJ at, at Fat Beats and my friend Alina was working the register there at the time. And so like Saturday mornings, I would just go in there, check out the new records that they had stocked, um, drink a coffee, eat a bagel and, you know, just sort of like hang out. And one Saturday afternoon in probably like May of 98, um, a very tall gentleman walked in um, and started talking to uh, Max Glazer. And, you know, I'm just sitting with Alina bullshitting. And all of a sudden over the PA system, I hear what would, you know, the record that is my name is for the first time. And 
I'm like, the voice instantly is recognizable to me. And I'm, you know, I'm like, this is the kid from Detroit, the, the white rapper, that kid Eminem, but he sounds really different. He's like super high pitched instead of like this like bass na nasal voice. And I walk over to the tall gentleman who would be Paul Rosenberg. Um, and I'm like, hey, is this uh, Eminem? And he's like, yeah, this is the new Eminem. You, you know, we just signed a deal. I'm his manager. Um, and or no, actually, he was like, I'm his lawyer. Um, we just signed a deal with Dr. Dre. He's going to be on Aftermath. And um, him and Dre got in the studio recently, you know, a few weeks ago. And this is the first record that they made. And he played My Name Is. He played Guilty Conscience. And he played Role Model. And I was absolutely blown away. Um, you know, I had really liked the Just Don't Give a Fuck single um and thought that they're you know it was novel and that the lyrics were funny and catchy um but it was like a decidedly underground record with a you know a pretty modest ceiling in my mind and these dre records were just so big and also you have to understand this is a, a time where dr dre is kind of walking off a misfire with uh the firm and right. So these are the first time that we're hearing the sound that would become the the new Dre sound. And it's like, holy shit, this sounds, you know, it's huge, it's big, it's musical, and it's not G-Funk. It's, I don't, you know, it sounds like boom bap rap, but done on this like really expansive scale. Um, and uh, I ran to the Blaze office on Monday morning and I told Jesse and, and a gentleman named Daryl Dossie about it. And um, they were like, all right, you know, I mean, Dr. Dre's the man, you know, he 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 kind of missed with those last two records with the, the Firm and the Aftermath album. But I mean, you can't really count that guy out. So Paul and uh, Drew Haw came up to um, the office and played, I don't know, six or seven uh M records and those guys were sold. I was not lying. And uh, the next week I got on a flight to uh, Burbank, California and uh, met up with, with M and spent about a week uh, shadowing him as he was mixing the Slim Shady LP. Incredible. And you're with Royce at the same time, right? Yeah, it was him and Royce. Um, you know, I obviously had no idea who Royce was at the time, but you know, literally, I, I I pulled up in this like strip mall um, where they had their studio um, in Burbank. And as I'm walking to the studio, I hear there's like a rental car um, that is blasting music, like incredibly loud. The bass is like rumbling. And as I get closer, I realize I can hear the vocals and that this is M's voice. And I look in and... M and Royce are sitting, you know, in the driver's seat and um, right. and shotgun. And so I knock on the window and I explain who I am. And they're like, oh, shit. Yeah, you know, we're just mixing the, these records. And M explains that he likes to listen to everything in the car because, you know, basically finds that like things sound one way on studio speakers, on monitors, and then you get them in a car and they sound totally different. So he was like, I never close out a mix session without taking it into the car. So they invite me and I was actually with Max Glazer at the time. Um, he was out, out there doing another story for Blaze. 
with DJ Revolution. And uh, we sat in the back seat and listened to As the World Turns and our jaws hit the floor. And as we go pretty pretty aggressive content um yeah. and it definitely you know i was like holy shit i can't believe the things this guy is saying and um and yeah and i spent a, about a week kind of just shadowing him you know as he worked on that stuff um and um sort of put the, the finishing touches on that, that record um it was incredible though every now and again i've had experiences in this as a journalist where I I know that I am witnessing history as it's happening and spending that time with M and Royce, I knew it instantly. And I came home and I wouldn't shut up about, you know, how he was about to be the biggest thing in the world. And, I, you know, to remember, this is like in 1998, um, there is a very bad taste in everyone's mouth about the idea of a white rapper. Um you know, Vanilla Ice has ruined this for absolutely everybody. Um, the idea of a white rapper being even like credible is uh, a bit of a stretch. And the idea of a white rapper crossing over and being commercially successful is more or less unthinkable. Um, and I come back and I'm just like, yo, I look, no one wants to be championing this less than me, the 19 year old white kid that, um, you know, is on the team, like, but I'm telling you, like whatever the thing is that Dr. Dre did when he took Snoop Dogg and made Doggy Style, like he's, that's, he did that with this guy. And these records are, they're lyrical, they're clever, they're funny, they're interesting, and they all knock. Um, I think this is this is gonna be a thing. I remember one of my friends at NYU, like literally just to shut me up, um, bet me a hundred dollars that M wouldn't go gold. Um, really, I wish that I still had that check because he definitely did write me a hundred dollar <laughs> check. Um, about ten months later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was just and it, it it was incredible. And again, like it is one of those few moments where you know that you are witnessing history as it unfolds and, you know, getting to sort of like sit in it. Um, it, it, was, it was an unbelievable experience. Make sure you tune in next week for part two of our conversation with Noah, in which we discuss his run with stimulated records, mass appeal, complex, def jam, and so much more, including idea generation. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh -oh.
Uh-oh. You're wrong. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My peoples, are you with me where you at?